Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Sometimes I just use my imagination and I draw a line around the space and I imagine my ego going outside of that space. I remind myself that I'm willing to fail, to screw up. It doesn't matter, but I am there to let go really, to just let go and let something come through me and then to respect whatever it is I get. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast. I'm your host, Kellyanne Powers. We are kicking off the 2020 interview season with the voice you just heard, mixed media artist Joan Fullerton. Before we get started, a quick housekeeping note. For 2020, interviews will come out the second and fourth Mondays of the month. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash subscribe to get on the newsletter so you don't miss a single one. All right, to the interview. We cover a lot of territory. Fullerton discusses how she creates all that beautiful mystery in her work, how she teaches materials in her workshops, and why learning to critique your own work the right way is so important for your growth as a painter, plus a whole lot more. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode seven for show notes. Here we go. Hi, Joan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, Kelly. Thank you. How did you get into art? As a young child, my parents realized that I had an aptitude for drawing, and my mother then got me into some painting classes And then uh, I came from a very small rural town in Wyoming, and they didn't have an art program in the schools until I was a junior. And when I then got to experience art in the schools, I was so impressed with the art instructor and art history, and I thought, "Mm, that's something I could do. And so I pursued it in college and got an MFA degree so I could teach at the college level. You went to art school, and then you studied under some pretty amazing watercolorists. How did you move into mixed media? First of all, I'd like to acknowledge those wonderful watercolor instructors. Oh my God, what a wonderful background to have. I eventually got hired to teach full-time art in a community college in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I taught every kind of classes you can imagine at a community college, so I taught color theory, drawing, painting, printmaking, general art, life drawing, etc. And was fairly proficient in all of them. But one day I agreed to do an on-site, one of those um, painting on location things where they auction your art off at the end. And I took all my materials with me and sat there on the street and everyone would come up and like, oh yeah, my aunt paints and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So distracting. The painting was not turning out, started as a watercolor. I just kept adding materials to this composition. So I had pastel, I had pencil, I had acrylic paint. I had everything in the suitcase in that painting. 
And I thought it was amazing. And it sold for the top dollar, which had been one of my concerns. It's like, oh, my God, I don't want to be the bottom seller. You know, just please let it go to somebody. And it kind of took me off in that direction. Then it's like, wow, you know, I can just keep layering my materials and eventually get a fascinating surface. And so that was at least one of the inspirations for mixed media. So it was kind of an accident? <laughs> yeah, everything I do that really takes me down a new path has started from a so-called accident. For instance, one time, uh, it was actually my first trip to Europe back in the day when we had film and cameras, and I double exposed the whole roll of film. So getting so excited to see the cathedrals of Vienna when I got my pictures back, I had all these towers with pictures of my poppy paintings running through them. And at first I'm like, oh God, you're just so dumb. Why did you do that? You ruined a whole roll of film. And then later I'm like, oh, Joan, these are remarkable. These are far more interesting than, you know, what I had expected. And so it got me another way into layering in that I love to see one image through another image. I love ambiguity. I love a story that's not all that straightforward. So yeah, that was a, one of my mistakes. I've made many. <laughs> when you sort of realize like, oh, mixed media, like this is something that I enjoy was it hard to transition from your training, both from art school and from watercolor, having been sort of your focus? Well, I really turned that corner into mixed media when I was living in Taos, New Mexico, and I had created a large body of work for an exhibition there. And I had done some things where I was gluing kind of low relief materials in, and then I was pouring resin on top of it. And I had just delicious surfaces. And I was also doing a lot of oil painting. And I hit a tipping point with toxins and could no longer work with these materials that put me in bed for days at a time. I had to give up oil, could never use that really poisonous stuff like resin again. So I moved into acrylic paint rather exclusively, which I didn't like. I thought, oh God, this stuff is horrible. It's, well, the truth is it's plastic. And I didn't like the feel of that. I didn't like my lack of control with blending. But as I kept using it, I became more and more comfortable with its attributes because I can use that like watercolor, I can use it like oil, I can layer, I can collage. It just opens every avenue you can think of for creating mixed media pieces. And I'm wondering now if I deviated from the question. This is what happens. I get so interested in the answer. I forget, like, <laughs> what, 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 even, what even was the question? Um, I know, right? We went to some... Uh, interesting stuff, but I don't know if I answered the original question. So I guess, was it hard to transition with a watercolor background into something? Yeah. And I, I think that's why I brought up the acrylic paint. That was at first super frustrating for me. Oh gosh, oil was actually my first love. It's like oh, somebody you'll never get over, but you just can't live with them. And so... <laughs> Now, I'm just finding that I can work with gels and anything to change the viscosity of the acrylic paint and get multiple effects. So it's, it's amazing. I was actually brought on board with Golden Paints as one of their artist educators and so got the instruction on, on all the unique qualities of acrylic paint. So I'm grateful for that. 
it's such a great company Golden is, and I know the rest of them are also wonderful, but Golden, the family and how they originated the paint and used to take it into, they would carry the paint in buckets into New York City to give to Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner and all of these super well-known famous artists and tried to develop paints that the artists want to work with. When you decided to go full-time how did that transition go? And, and were there fears around that? Or was that a pretty easy transition because you had been thinking about it for a while? What did that transition look like into full-time painter? Well, I loved the security of having a full-time job teaching at the college. That was pretty awesome. But I just have a personality that after so many years, I'm bored and I need a new challenge. I need to shake it up. I don't like getting too comfortable. And so I had been going to Taos, New Mexico in the summers to house it and became very enamored with the supportive community of artists, the inspiration of the landscape. And I'd been, gosh, I just, I wish I had the courage to break from, from my full-time job and go there. And of course I met a man who thought he might want to help me with that. And I moved down and married this guy and kind of, uh, ha well, I did absolutely have this opportunity then to live this lifestyle of full-time creating. And I was doing just okay. I think for me having help with making a living didn't make me really get out there and do it on my own. So it wasn't until that marriage ended after about, uh, I guess it was about seven years that I really got serious about making a living. And that was really such a blessing for me because I took on commissions. I worked in the studio. I took on all kinds of teaching jobs. I developed a workshop business. So I don't know if that was another one of my so-called mistakes, getting married. I don't think so. I don't even know if I actually believe in mistakes. But that situation made me prove myself as an artist in Taos. And then when it ended, made me get out there and prove myself as somebody who can create a business and teach around the country and actually around the world. What does intuitive painting mean to you? Oh, that is such a hot topic. I've heard this question asked of many people, and I don't always agree with what I hear other people say. To me, it is when you are, your ego isn't so much a part of the process. You've kind of swept out all the thoughts in your head, and you're going to paint more from your heart center. It's where you might get a little whisper of a notion and people will ask me, they'll go, well, how do you know if it's your intuition giving you an idea? And I'm like, well, it's for me like a little whisper. But if it comes into my awareness, like I was typing a note in all caps, that is probably my mother. You get my drift. That's probably some authority figure. That's probably something I learned in a class. Well, you know, you should always have three shapes, not two, or you should never put an area of greatest interest at the edge. So I like to listen to the whispers. I like to listen to the little hints of an idea. And I say that I work intuitively because I paint like I was singing a song that's being written in the moment. So I never know where I'm going to go. I never have a destination in mind. I just take off and listen to the whispers. It's kind of painting from the heart is what I think. 
distinguishing whispers from the all caps that takes a fair amount of self-knowledge and confidence was that pretty immediate or did it take time to start to notice like wait a minute that sounds like my mother and not me i mean <laughs> how long did that dis- being able to distinguish where the voices were coming from and which one to sort of listen to and take care of and sort of like foster how long did, <laughs> how long did it take to learn that Well, it is a process, and I think one of the most wonderful attributes of being an artist is that you do develop very deep self-awareness, or at least that's what happened for me. But I have to say, my interaction with a Jungian psychologist back when I was raising teenage daughters and working full-time at the college really clarified for me that there are different voices in our head and so I have an inner critic and I have a playful child and I have a um, maybe a pissed off menopausal woman I mean I have all these various personality types or archetypes within me and she really taught me that it's okay to use the rigid rule-based one, to get my show invitations in the mail, to be present for the correct time of this interview, etc. But that's not the personality archetype that should be in the studio trying to create something new and interesting. That is probably my more playful, lighthearted, investigatory sort of a personality. I think I just made up a new word there. <laughs> so I've worked with this awareness for a really long time and then teaching multiple people and watching them get so stuck and so insecure and so needing somebody else to tell them, I realize that they too need this help of, well, if you were just a kid making a painting, What would your kids say to do? Or what is it that's got you held back? Are you so worried that your ego is going to be embarrassed by an ugly painting that you won't take a risk? I think this is a really key thing about being an artist, about being a human being, is because, you know, we don't often stop to think about how fascinating we are as people and that all of these aspects serve a very valid purpose in our life but only I mean I don't want to paint with my critic in the studio because she's just really no fun first of all and she's gonna beat up everything I I do in fact one time I was getting ready for a show and the work just came easily and I I had nine canvases hung on the wall and I just paint on them simultaneously and very quickly they looked great to me But then I heard this voice, well, that was too easy. That can't be good art. So the critic was getting in there and messing with the psychology of my process. So, Before we know better, we think that somehow the critic, what she says, is more valid because it's negative than what the other voices say. Yeah, I know. We just don't trust ourselves. And especially because um, with my methods and the process that I teach, people come up with all kinds of very unusual compositions. And because it's unusual, they don't trust it and they don't think it's any good. And so 
I see my role as pointing out, oh my God, do you see that you've just created something that is so uniquely you? It's like nothing else we've ever seen before. And so to value something that seems strange and unusual because you have done it. I mean, people just really, oh, they can't wait to cover things over and hide them. And and then they want you to show them how to make something that is like what they've seen before that feels safe. So yeah, we're all insecure. How then do you create that protected space in your studio? That there is a part of you, you're a professional artist, you need to show up on time, but then how do you create, how have you created that protected space in the studio? Well, I do it both in my studio and in the classroom. And sometimes I just use my imagination and I draw a line around the space and I imagine my ego going outside of that space. I remind myself that I'm willing to fail, to screw up. It doesn't matter. But I am there to let go really, to just let go and let something come through me and then to respect whatever it is I get and and to not be in a hurry to finish something because (laughs) this is the other aspect of of an egoistic sort of thinking is that, well, we think we just have to go in there and get something done. And this is so great because when I studied with Edgar Whitney, who is was a very famous watercolorist. He was 92. And he said to us, he said, you have to paint like you have all the time in the world. He said, don't be in a hurry to finish a painting. Don't try to finish a painting in one sitting. If he at 92 can say, you know, slow down, take your time. I think that's pretty good advice. So I paint quickly. My hand is working with a very fast tempo, and this is to keep my left brain from getting in there. Plus, if I work quickly, I'm more apt to get random marks and strokes that have an innate beauty without a self-conscious kind of trying. So I paint very quickly, but I'm not in a hurry. And I sometimes fall back into, oh my God, that just doesn't look right. What am I going to do? Because it's pretty hard to stay in such a pure state for the whole time you're teaching or the whole time you're painting. But I can often catch myself, oh yeah, let it go, you know, mess it up. Even though, you know, I might think, oh, some little part of something's precious. No, mess it up. Get back to that state of openness, of just seeing what shows up. It sounds like that's a skill that can be developed. Yeah, it all of this is a mindset that is valuable, but it takes practice. You know, it, it takes a little bit of reminding yourself or what I do in my classroom is I have developed a sequence of prompts that I give them one at a time and they do it right after I give the prompt so they don't have time to get in there and question like oh I don't know if I should put this mark here or there you know there's no you just do something and then you get what you get and then you do something to that and then you do something to that and so there is no long time of letting your critic get in there and say, oh, well, that looks really stupid, or that's never going to sell, or, you know, on and on. 
And also, I just want to make a note for listeners that Joan mentioned Edgar Whitney, and Edgar Whitney really is one of the grandfathers of modern watercolor. His influence on a generation and therefore generations through their students after is so profound. So I just want to point that out because some of our listeners may not know that, oh man, you got to take a class with Edgar Whitney. (laughs) That's amazing. It was awesome. And the other thing about Edgar was uh, we were both staying at the same hotel. And so we were meeting every morning for breakfast. And oh, gosh, just such a, an amazing treat to get to sit and visit with this guy because he, he truly did teach all the great watercolors alive today. And the trickle down effect is pretty amazing. So we're going to talk about process a little bit. First off, entering into process. Could you describe the mood you're trying to get with your paintings? And also just a note, Joan paints mixed media acrylic. So keep that in mind when she's talking about that. And there's, I know you use other things too, but sort of as a baseline, what's the mood you're trying to get in your work? Well, I have certain attributes that resonate with me for my own work. And I like to see in my paintings a sense of depth I often like to have a bit of mystery in there. I like some ambiguity. Sometimes for me, my paintings feel like they're a bit narrative and I like to have a story, even though it might not be a straightforward and absolute kind of a story. And I often wish I could get just a little bit more whimsy in my work because sometimes I feel when I look at a a body of paintings that I've completed that they're a little, I think I kind of like a lonely, quiet, contemplative feeling, which might be sort of a deeper storyline. So when a bit of whimsy shows up, some character-like, some lively little strokes and shapes, I adore that. So occasionally I get it. But often I do have these more mystical, sometimes I feel they have a spiritual bent. Sometimes I feel they have a message to share. And often this becomes apparent to me what they might be about when I'm trying to title them. Because I have lists and lists of words. I really find words inform me about my art. And so I go through the list of words I've collected and I'm going back and forth between the words and the look of the painting and trying to decide what fits and what about it makes a certain word seem to resonate with that painting. Could you walk us through your process? I start out with scribbles. I just want to kind of mark my space. I say I'm like a dog peeing in the yard. I'm marking out my territory. I'm giving it my energy. I'm dripping. I'm drawing. I'm stabbing. I'm wiping. I'm putting paint on with brayers. All of this stuff, which is a wonderful physical release, and it's fascinating because I don't have to make it look like anything. And then out of these preliminary, somewhat random marks of me just playing with surface and materials, I will start to see, oh, this this really feels like it wants to be a landscape, or I'm seeing botanical images emerge of, wow, there's a figure in there. And sometimes I will go with that, or other times I'm like, nah, I'm not really ready to marry that idea. I'm going to just keep it open for longer and see what else might be possible. 
those first layers, is that done all in one session? Like the mark making and the brayering and the painting with a brush are all at the same time? Or is it generally mark making and then brayering? And then do you see what I mean? Is it is it sort of like a mixed salad or a layered cake? <laughs> That's a terrible analogy, but I think you know what I mean. Well, to answer you, it's a mixed salad for dessert with frosting on it. So here's the deal. I love the random mark. So I knew this was true to me when often I would look over at my palette and realize, oh my God, I love my palette more than I love my painting. So it's the unselfconscious shapes and strokes that I find beauty in. So then it was like, well, how do I get that? Well, I just take, sometimes it's a 48 by 60 canvas, huge. And I scribble on it. I drip, I brayer, but, but I don't always go in the same sequence. And I go back and forth between, oh, I might paint a big shape and then I'll go back in and scribble over that. So for me, I equate it to a yin yang kind of process. It's like in yoga, when one does a forward bend for a certain length of time, your body really then wants to stand up and perhaps even move backward. So it's this, okay, I painted this really thinly and drippy. Now I want to put on some thick impasto paint. How would I do that? Would I use a brayer? Would I use a spatula? Would I print it on there? And then I'll do that. Well, now what? Oh, I think I want to draw now. And so it's never the same sequence, but it's always just, oh, well, now I think I want this. And now what if? And then what? I was thinking about this this morning because I teach this in my classes and I also teach it with the hope that people start making up their own unique ways of getting the paint on there. For instance, one of the ones I made up is called the dangling sleeve and I invented it, you know, of course, accidentally, but it's, it creates wonderful marks on the surface. So, I want them to start making up their own ways of getting it on there. But this morning I thought, okay, what are ways I haven't begun yet? And I kind of erase all thoughts out of my head and I imagine a blank surface. And you can even do this in this moment if you want to. You, you close your eyes and you imagine a substrate. And then, okay, are there big shapes of strong value contrast on there? What if there were three large ovals and they were dark on a light background? And then what if I went back in and I scribbled over two of them and I linked unpainted area with painted area? Oh, what if I fogged three quarters of this whole thing with a very thin white paint? Okay, what if I turned it 90 degrees now and drew a bunch of marks on newspaper and then printed them on the surface somewhere? So it's just imagining and for me, this is what true creativity is. It's not learning to duplicate what you've seen somebody else paint. It's like you constantly asking, well, what if, what if, and then what if, and then what if. Do you take a conscious break between that part of the creating and then where you do the thinking about what this painting is telling you it can be either a landscape or maybe a figure in it is there do you create time space between that yes so this initial 
getting acquainted, playing, inventing all that with the substrate takes about 30 or 40 minutes for me. And truly, regardless of the size of the substrate, I do it really quickly so that my left brain can't get in there and analyze. So then I take a break. And when I do this looking at the art, I'm it's also great to have several that I do at once, but regardless, I like to be sure that I'm viewing them vertically. So if I'm working really wet, which I do sometimes, then I need a table or work on the floor because sometimes the paint is soupy. But when I'm looking at them and looking into them, I put them on the wall or on an easel in a vertical position so they get a straight on look and I turn them in every direction, you know, 360 all the way around, and I contemplate. I just kind of sit back and I look at them, and I might get an idea, oh yeah, let's soften this area, let's bring this area out. It's sort of like being a conductor, and you, you can soften the volume, and you can bring it up to a big crescendo. So I might lift up, pull back. A lot of times I don't know right away. And sometimes this initial trip through there, which in class I often call the underpants, you know, it's like sometimes your underpants, your underwear looks so great, you don't even want to put clothes on. You just want it to go out in the world as it is because it's spontaneous, it's free. And so I might not do another thing to them. But if they're, for whatever reason, not interesting enough for me or I see potential for them to have some sort of subject matter imposed upon them, then I'm a, I go like, well, if I was going to do that, how would I do it? Would it be in this position? Would there be a strong light in the background for a horizon line? So where sky meets earth, there's a change in value. Would I heighten the chroma, the color in the foreground? Would I give an atmospheric sort of feeling? And it's all of this kind of open-ended questioning, like, well, if I was going to make it into a landscape, how would I do that? Where would I do that? And so a lot of people who take my classes really want that aspect of it. They are more inclined to make an abstracted subject rather than a non-objective abstract painting. But I find that's also changing a little bit. What does the process give you and why is it important? Having just gone through a difficult time in my life, losing my parents, I, this became just really apparent to me. It's when I am involved in the process of making art, it's all encompassing. You just disappear into the process. You forget if you have a heartache or if you forget if you have physical pain. And so the process is what connects me to the universe, the all, whatever that is, it's much bigger than just me, my personality, and my momentary concerns. So I think having a creative life, whether it's making music, painting, dancing, whatever it is, it just connects us to a bigger awareness. What strikes me about what I hear you saying is how present moment it sounds, and how do you do that? How do you make time in your day that is protected for your creative process, both from uh -huh. a time standpoint and from a distraction standpoint? Oh, I, I would not say I've mastered this by any means, but I have a compulsive personality. And so 
the other day, my brother contacted me, said, we, we need some financial papers as soon as possible. Well, maybe if I was a more balanced sort of a personnel, I'd go, okay, I'll work on it. You know, and I would do a, you know, a few hours and then I would paint and then I would answer my emails and then I would blah, blah, blah. But not me. I sat down and didn't move from the computer till I had it done. And so it was five or six hours. I skipped lunch. And, and I'm like this when I do my taxes too. I don't want to do it. So I make myself just get it done. And yeah, I have a lot of time that has to be spent at the computer, which I don't really love, but it's significant to marketing my work and all of that. So I do it. But I am not somebody who's just good at turning it off for a certain time and going to the studio and then doing it, okay, then at four o'clock, then I do the computer. No, that's not me. And I, I see all those art coaches out there saying that's the way to do it. Well, it's just not going to happen. I'm sorry. I will then paint nonstop for three days in a row. I do it in a unbalanced way. My balance is very unbalanced. I jump head first into creating and stay in that soup for as long as I can. And then when the other stuff has to be done, then I sit and just do all of it until it has to be finished. We're going to transition into materials. How important is being comfortable with your materials when you're learning to paint? I think it's nice that you're comfortable enough that you're not worried about it. But because I've developed this way of teaching that it's my very process that teaches them about all the different attributes of the paint without teaching them the attributes of the paint. It's pretty fascinating. For instance, I might say to them, put down a wet area on your substrate and then put some paint on your palette and water it down so it will just fall off of your brush and then tap your brush over the wet area and get a wet into wet explosion like a watercolor painting would have. And so then they see that and they go, oh yeah, so that's how you get that. And then I'll say, now turn your substrate 90 degrees. Okay, load up that plastic card with some very thick paint. I want you to drag that horizontally across the substrate in a curvilinear manner. They do that and they go, oh, that's what it looks like when you put really thick paint on. And they'll be like, okay, take a damp paper towel and soften the edge of that thick area of paint. Oh, that's how you soften an edge. So all of that teaches them how the materials can be used. Now the glitch is that with acrylic paint, a lot of people paint just right out of the tube. They don't spend a lot of time mixing colors and I've got a lot of background in mixing colors. So I do that without thinking about it very much. So I do try when I'm teaching to take a day and discuss color mixing a little bit, but all of those stinking color wheels I had to make throughout years and years of education, I think it was wonderful and I never really hated it because it's like oh yeah let's gray this color down a little bit with some complementary color and 
some white and on and on. So I try to do that in a, most of my classes are four to five days. So, you know, you don't really get to scratch the surface of color mixing. But um, I think that is a downfall. And if there was any sort of a class that somebody might want to do to supplement what it is I teach, it would be, oh, just take a lot of time and practice mixing all the different colors together, mix them with white, with black, you know, lighten them, darken them, make them less bright, you know, lower the chroma. So color mixing, I think is, I don't know, with acrylic paint, you can layer it. So you're looking through one film of color into another one, but I find a lot of paintings I see, I realize, oh yeah, you could do more with color. And, and so could I, because when I work quickly, I don't always get the colors mixed like I used to as an oil painter. So you use acrylic paints. Do you use heavy body? Do you use fluid? What kind of acrylic paints do you use and why? In my classes, I try to have everybody bring all the varieties of acrylics that they can, with the exception of the open paints, because I, I hate to have the materials list so long that they just have to go out and buy paint. But I personally love to use the fluids, especially when I travel and I carry little one-ounce bottles with me so I can have a variety of colors with me and there's just so much pigment in those they can do so many things and the heavy body paints I'd forgotten about until like a year ago and I had boxes and boxes of them I was like well I better use those before they dry out so I've been using a lot of heavy body paints lately just kind of scraping them on with giant tools and the high flow paint is awesome because it's got even more pigment and they're usually very transparent and you can put a little bit of that in a small spray bottle and spray get a colored mist which in my class we call it the colored spritz so you can spritz through a stencil or you can just have some really nice thick paint on your substrate and just hit it sideways with the spritz and it just goes on the peaks and the valleys in such unique ways and then it might drip down or whatever. And then when I'm not teaching, I will implement with some open paint. It's just slower drying, gives me more time to blend colors together, more time to mix. It's just amazing, all of it. And I love using them all together. Acrylics can have pretty hard edges and yet your work really has soft edges. What are you doing physically to keep those edges soft? That's when the damp paper towel comes in handy because you can just lightly soften the edge of a shape and then it will blend into the surrounding areas. I also really love to put things behind an atmospheric fog. And so I might just rub some translucent paint over an area and join a couple different color shapes together with this translucency. I also will have a film of one color over another color, which tends to soften some of the edges as well. So when you're doing that translucency, the paint is dry and then you're sort of rubbing another uh -huh. color on top. Yeah. A lot of times I'll just dip my paper towel into some white paint and I tend to use gesso as my white paint because I use so much white paint and I'll just dip it into my little tub of that and then wipe it on the substrate and then take some more paper towel that's dry and clean and just keep scrubbing through it until the shapes that are underneath 
which have to be dry before you do this, by the way. But you then will see those shapes underneath, but they'll be behind this fog. Joan has a great YouTube channel, and we'll have links in the show notes for how to get there. And watching you paint, I'm so struck by how you really lay a color down and then do something to it. That it seems like very rarely do you put something down on your substrate and then just say, like, that's done. That color can just be left alone now. Can you you talk about that? Your comment about you put something down and you do something to it is very relevant because that is truly what I do. I put something down and it's like, oh, okay, I think I'll scrape through that. I think I'll soften the edges. Okay, turn it. I think I'll lay something over that. Okay, I'll do something to that. Okay, I think I'll draw over the top of that. And so it is this constant modifying of whatever it is I've just established. And I find it super entertaining. It's sort of like looking through those double exposed photographs to, okay, yeah, there's a shape there, but I can see something through it. And there is this term that I've always just really loved. It's called pentimento. Pentimento is about the layering of paint over the top of an older layered painting. And you might see the edges of what's underneath there. And that hint, that echo, that suggestion of something that came before really entices me. It's like a half-forgotten memory that is embedded beneath the top layer. And it's, for me, this history of layers that holds fascination. When I was a purist watercolor painter, I was not one of those who felt they should erase the drawing, the preliminary drawing. I loved the drawing to be revealed. And I remember Frank Webb used to say, he'd say, those are the bones of the painting. Well, I loved seeing the bones. I loved seeing the process. So I think that's why I do something and do something to it and then do something to that. I can see that evolution of creating the surface. I think a challenge for beginning students, especially with acrylic, can be everything feels so stuck on top because it's so it dries so fast and then you have those edges. Are hard edges a problem with acrylic? Not with the way I teach. I, I don't see that happen much. It's impossible, actually, to have that when you use my methods because I'm constantly saying to them, soften those edges, soften a few of the edges, layer something over, fog this part. And it really stems from me not liking a painting that has all hard edges. You know, how do you get the most power out of imagery? It's by having contrasts. So if all of your edges are hard, you lose the impact of a hard edge. But if you have mostly soft edges and then there's a hard edge, then that hard edge has great significance. So I create contrasts in my work so that areas will have greater importance. For instance, If everybody is all about color and you want to have a very high chroma painting, you can't really achieve that by using every color you own because they'll cancel each other out and you won't be able to see any of them. You have to use your chroma significantly. So if you have areas that are quiet color, then when you do use your more potent colors, they have an importance. 
Where in your process do you really start thinking about color on sort of a conscious level? I am a big believer in restraints, constrictions, and limitations. And I feel that when you give yourself an assignment that really constrains your opportunities, that within those constraints, then you become creative. So when I start out, I make a definite choice. I am going to use maybe just three colors, black, white, and a neutral buff or something. And so I will just use those colors. And usually I pick something, I just grab something because I don't want to like try be trying to feel like, oh yeah, I want to have a mostly this or that, whatever. I just like, oh, let's just do something, just pick a few. So then as my process evolves just through this laying color down, dripping, stabbing, wiping, all of that stuff, certain colors will start to take prominence. And I will then decide, oh, do I like this color? It's kind of a gut feeling. Am I feeling all this red? Or oftentimes it'll be like, no, I'm feeling more like changing it toward cools. And so it's just this awareness of being responsive to what I'm seeing. So the first trip through, I don't think much about that. But when I step back and evaluate, I have just a few things that I look for. Is there depth? Is there a variety of edges? Does it interest me? I mean, first of all, I just have to have a little intrigue there. It's like, well, I got to have something that is new and surprising for myself or I'm not very interested. And then I really believe that work is far more successful if there is at least a temperature dominance. That if your painting leans either mostly warm or mostly cool, I think if it's too equal, it dilutes the impact. And so if it's oh, maybe it's half warm, half cool, then I decide, well, which am I going to have it be? And I'll just pick one and I'll just put more of whatever color will lean toward that temperature. And then after I've limited and created all these constraints, I open it up and then I like, I'll do just whatever I think it needs. It's like, yeah, I just feel like maybe I'll drag a little metallic paint through this area and hit it with a colored spritz. Or I'll take a giant... Hard edge I got at the hardware store and loaded up with some heavy body paint and scraped through the whole damn thing. You know, I just, I'm always willing to take a risk. I'm always willing to ruin a painting for the sake of my own entertainment. How important is learning to critique your own work? And are there good and bad ways to do that? I think there are definitely better ways to do critiquing. I think it's actually one of my better skills because I can always find something positive happening in a painting. And I think this is the difference between a person who goes with what they see versus what it could be. It's a visionary sort of of a way of seeing. It's like, whoa, this could be this, could do that. And I think the language that we use when we talk about art, our own and others, is very significant because as I teach and listen to people that go, oh, it's just too busy. And I said, do not use pejorative words when you're discussing your art. How else might you say that? What if you said, this is a very active painting. It has a lot of energy in it that totally changes what you see and it totally changes 
what you might do to it because then we might say do we want activity and energy all over do you want to have it in significant areas but being able to use words so that they empower you rather than shut you down is a very important thing and I find that we are very lazy people when it comes to our language skills, when it comes to describing. I will also say to them, do not tell me you like that painting or that you dislike that painting or that that's really cool or whatever. You must use words that actually say something. For instance, you might say that those marks are very robust or those images are forceful and fierce, or the, those shapes have humorous qualities, or that's a very ethereal composition, or I love the nuancing of those colors, or etc. So I actually provide my classes with lists of descriptive adjectives so that they go looking for a word that more precisely describes what it is they're seeing or feeling about a painting. And this will not only help you to appreciate something that has shown up rather than just dissing it, but it will help you to understand what you're creating so that if somebody says, well, we need an artist statement from you, then you can write something like, well, the saturated color is very whatever, you know, inspiring or uplifting or whatever. You'll have access to words that actually describe more powerfully what you have done. What's the danger in pejorative words? They close down your possibilities, your opportunities, and they give you a chance to negate what you have been given. Actually, I think whenever we create something, it's like, no, <laughs> this is something that came through. You take a peek at it, look at it, because, you know, they'll say, oh, this is just so muddy. And I go, you mean those neutrals don't please you? Well, what could you do so that you did appreciate their role in this composition? Would it be just a spot of color that runs alongside? What if you overlapped with this? What if you fogged part of this? But it's all about possibility rather than, oh my God, this sucks, or how long do I have to wait before I'm just so over it? It's like, hold on here a minute. There is probably something of value that you need to look at a little bit longer. But I think our insecurities rise to the surface so quickly and we're really ready to assume that we have failed, that we don't give ourselves the chance of seeing the positive side, which is fascinating because, you know, as children paint, they just look at it and they're pleased and you go, well, you might want to add this or do that. And they go, nope, it's done. You know, they're totally satisfied. And yet as adults, we're like, oh my God, what should I do to it? You know, how can I fix it? And it's like, well, I don't know. Does it need fixing? Or is there something that's already kind of interesting here? Insecurity is just a huge thing that gets in the way of people creating something that is unique. Why do you think we go negative? 
is it that we just don't feel worthy or, you know, that the critic just jumps in there and it's like, well, that can't be any good. I haven't seen anything like that ever before. So I, I remember this one woman in a class, she would just constantly kind of badger me to give her like the answer to what her painting needed as if there's an answer book and I can just look on page 60 and see what in that circumstance is the right thing. And I would always say to her, well, I don't know. It's not my painting. It's yours and you have to try things. You go, no, really, really, just tell me. And so I would ask her, I'd say, well, what is your favorite part of this composition? And she would point to an area that I basically would have said, oh, well, why don't you cover this up? <laughs> so then I realized we all have our own aesthetic. I cannot tell somebody what to leave, uh, what to do more of, what to do less of, because I'm then telling them how to paint my painting. I'm not helping them to find their own way to make their own painting. So I give the analogy of what if Van Gogh would have said to his contemporaries, hey man, listen, you know, my work just isn't selling. I, I'm just, uh, I've got to earn some money. What's wrong with my art? Please just tell me, what do I need to do? And what if Gauguin would have said, oh God, listen, you know, those thick, brush strokes, those ghastly impasto marks in that like nervous sort of agitated manner you put them on and some of your color, quite frankly, is just jarring. <laughs> and what if he would have said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll start smoothing those out and I'll blend more. You know, we wouldn't have that uniqueness. So I can't really say, no, you shouldn't do this. You should go this direction. It's like, I'm more inclined to say, well, if you were going to do something to this composition, do you have any ideas of what it might be? And if they don't, I go, well, think of all the options out there. You can paint over, you can soften, you can lighten, you can darken. Does any of that resonate? And they might say yes, or they might say no. And I'm like, if nothing comes to you, put this aside for a while. These paintings don't need to be finished right now. And often, once you get away from an aesthetic problem that you see as a problem, it's only when you get away from it, you go out, you're walking in nature, or you're having a nice dinner with friends, and you come back, will you be able to see, oh, I think I'll just put a couple lines in here and soften an edge, voila. So give it time, give it space, trust, let it look different than anything else you've ever seen. Do you see your students having a challenge with giving things time? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I see myself do this sometimes. And then I have to remind myself, hey, listen, there is no hard and fast deadline with this stuff, you know. And I'll think of Edgar. You know, he was 92. He didn't hurry. So lighten up about it. But for some reason, we do think, oh, my God, I've got to get this done. I don't even know why we put such silly pressure on ourselves. And just that not knowing the answer right now doesn't mean the painting is ruined. It just means you don't have the answer right now. Yeah. And sometimes you think it's not finished. And if you leave it alone and come back in a few days, you might look at it and go, oh, my God, it's just pretty good as it is right now. It might not need anything. I just wasn't ready for it. Sometimes I tell my students, oh, you're just not evolved enough to appreciate your own art. <laughs> and so you need to grow into it.
and it's not common, but I have a few of the people that I teach who they are so trusting of what comes through them that it's uncensored. They don't feel any need to go back and fix it up, clean it up, make it look like something they've seen before, and they leave it. And I admire that so much. And I have it in myself sometimes, but not always. And if I take a picture of something after my first trip through it, and then I decide, oh yeah, this is just so weird. I just, I'm just gonna work on this some more, and so I do. And then I go back and look at that initial photograph. It's like, why? I should have left it alone. It was fresh, it was innovative, it surprised me. And then I went in and I took all of its exuberance right out. If someone came to you and said they just wanna get really good at painting, what advice would you give them? Why don't you paint? <laughs> and do a lot of paintings. Many, many times I remind people in my classes about the ceramics instructor who divided his class into two groups. The one side got a grade based on quantity of pots. So if they made 200 pounds of pots, they got an A. 100 pound, they got to be whatever. The other side of the class, they only had to make one pot. It just had to be a really, really good pot. And so at the end of the semester, the quantity side had a lot of pots and the best pots because they had made so many, they'd learned from trial and error. And, you know, that's really the lesson about painting was just paint. So my father, when he was 87 or whatever, decided he wanted to paint and he got online and he ordered paints off of Amazon. He picked up a few canvases and some brushes and he just went out into the garage and he got out his paints and he made some paintings and he was doing Facebook, so he posted one of them he kind of liked. And oh my God, I could not believe it. It was so great. And then he did a couple more and they really weren't so great, you know. And I'm like, Dad, it's like golf. You know, once in a while you get a really amazing shot. But if you're me, you don't get very many good ones, you know. And so you just have to keep going. But a few good things that happen on canvas with your paint will keep you going. But you just have to paint to learn to paint. And you don't have to have a lot of background. You don't have to have, you just have to have the desire to do it and then do it and not get discouraged, you know? And I think that's when a class is helpful, especially one that teaches you to discover the good things that you create so that you, you do keep going. You can find more about Joan Fullerton at her website, joanfullerton.com, and on Instagram and Facebook. We will have links to her live classes and online classes at the website. Joan, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Kelly. It was so much fun. Thank you for joining us this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode seven for show notes and to add your name to the newsletter list. It's a great way to make sure you don't miss a single episode. See you in a few weeks. Happy painting.